Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The End Report. In this episode, we'll discuss how environmental issues played a key part in last week's local election results and whether the Greens are the new UKIP. We'll take a look at the future prospects for the Environment Agency should Labour win the next election and we'll find out why 2022 was a deadly year for rare birds of prey. Then, in this episode's deep dive, we'll be talking politics with Wildlife and Countryside Link Chief Executive Richard Benwell. So, without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm Jamie Carpenter, and I'm here with Pippa Neal. You may have noticed that I'm not James, your usual podcast host. He's away working on a special project, which you'll be hearing a lot more about in a few weeks' time. For our first story of this episode's Big Green News section, we're going to take a look at last week's local election results, which saw more than a 1,000 Conservative councillors lose their seats, and Labour, the Lib Dems and the Green Party make significant gains. We heard a lot in the run-up to last week's elections about how sewage was expected to be a big issue on the doorstep, but other environmental issues actually played a significant part too, and some of them were specific to particular localities. One of the councils that changed hands last week was Plymouth City Council in Devon, which was a Labour game. The local Conservative MP Johnny Mercer attributed the Tory party's loss to a row over tree felling. Pippa, can you tell us a bit more about this, please? Yeah, so in March, Tory councillors um, in Plymouth were widely slammed for a decision to fell 110 trees in the middle of the night to make way for this £12 million regeneration scheme. Um, And this was really controversial at the time with Luke Pollard, the Labour MP for Plymouth, Sutton and Devonport, describing it as an act of environmental vandalism. Um, The council had actually paused this project in February for public consultation, but Richard Bingley, the leader of the council, signed an executive decision that resulted in the trees being cut down. Um, And as a result of the controversy, Bingley stepped down as leader um, of the Conservative group and head of the authority. And in the wake of the local election result, where Labour gained control of the council from the Conservatives, the Conservative MP for Plymouth, Johnny Mercer, as you said, Jamie, cited this incident as being a key factor in the result telling the BBC that the result was really terrible for the party. So, yeah, if you see pictures showing the before and after, it was quite, quite shocking images. And I think, yeah, it goes to show that this was kind of a really key, key issue in local politics. I guess it's kind of convenient for the Conservatives to have something to blame it on rather than just their own poor national polling Mm. in that that circumstance. Okay, and then over over in Oxfordshire, there there was a lot of, um, in the run-up to the election, there was a lot of aggressive campaigning against low-traffic neighbourhoods. So the, 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 these are things that are cropping up all over the place and the, the aim is that they um, limit through traffic along smaller residential streets um, and allowing cyclists and pedestrians to pass through as normal. But they're very controversial and this was playing at Oxfordshire and four, four of the six Oxfordshire councils were up for election last week. So what happened? Did the arguments against the low traffic neighbourhood swing the voters? Yeah, so obviously, as you mentioned, this was, you know, an issue that was quite controversial in Oxford. But actually, interestingly, there was some research by The Big Issue um, where they compiled a list of over 30 anti-low traffic neighbourhood candidates across England and found that Enfield was the only area where gains were made. So this wasn't just specific to Oxfordshire, actually. It was kind of quite, quite broad with it being quite controversial in London as well. Um, But specifically in Oxfordshire, um, one Tory candidate, Michael Anthony Evans, ran a campaign which strongly criticised low traffic neighbourhoods in in the constituency um, and his votes fell short with the Lib Dems taking back control of the council. Um, And then another candidate, Sadea Mustafa Awan, defected from Labour over its support for low traffic neighbourhoods to stand as an independent in Oxford's Littlemore ward and she also fell short. 
Um, and then David Henwood, who stood as an, an independent candidate in, in the Cowley ward, who had said that low traffic neighbourhoods are poisoning the local community also fell short. So yeah, there was quite a lot of a lot of examples where these protests and local campaigning over low traffic neighbourhoods just clearly didn't ring true with the community in Oxford. Yeah, it's really interesting isn't it? whether whether it's um I guess it's quite hard with these things to to disentangle how much is to do with local local issues and, and whether if, if the groundswell of opinion against the party is so strong that, that these things aren't gonna make any difference anyway. But mm. um it does seem that that hasn't made a made much of a difference there. And just just stay on the on the elections and another another story that seems not to have really got much attention, whether whether it's due with the coronation or other stuff, but but the um, the Green Party did really well, and um, I think I, I saw that it, it outperformed even its own expectations. Um, it, so, how, how many seats did they pick up, and where do they do well? Yeah, so there was loads of great news for the Green Party um, last week when they recorded their best ever local election results, gaining more than two hundred forty seats across England. I mean, they actually made history in mid-Suffolk, where they took control of a council for the first time ever, which had previously been a minority Tory administration. I think it's quite interesting. They also had particular success in rural areas where they've taken seats from the Tories. Um, And the Greens are also now the largest party in Lewis in East Sussex, where they gained eight seats and the Tories lost 19. Um, And they also took seats from Labour, although in Bryson and Hove, Labour regained control of the council. But yeah, overall, it was kind of a real success story for the Green Party. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, the point about the sort of picking up seats in rural heartlands, because I think there there was a piece in Unheard, I think, over the weekend. They were kind of making the point that the the Greens have this kind of... um, image I suppose of being being a natural home of students and I think they use this is their phrase not mine aging aging hippies um but actually they're making these gains in 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 what are really Tory heartlands and the kind of a new a new threat for the Tories and and, and the scale of it we're sort of looking back to when when UKIP were big when they won seats like that it was described as a political earthquake and, and they're not really hearing anything about about this or probably not enough so um Definitely be interested to see whether that that kind of continues, sort of when the next set of elections happens. And and staying on, kind of staying on related issue. Um, I mean, I, I guess the 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 results we've seen sort of mean they mean that Labour continues to look likely to be the party that, that will form its government. And that there's a bit of debate as to whether or not they'll have enough seats to form a majority. Although they they say they they will have, but there's we're certainly seeing a lot of interest growing in what a, a Labour government might actually mean for environmental policy but um until recently we've not really known very much um and, but but over the weekend we we learned a little bit more about what the labor party might do around regulating the water industry that there was a report in the FT that suggests that the party could be actually minded to break up the environment agency um Pippa, could you tell us a bit more about what what they what they're reported to be thinking about here yeah, so at the moment, what we know is kind of, you know, the information is quite quite scarce and vague, but the Financial Times reported that um, Labour is drawing up plans to create a new water regulator, um, kind of in a bid to address public anger over sewage pollution. Um, and according to the paper, under these proposals, Labour would merge most of the Environment Agency with Ofwat and the Drinking Water Inspectorate in order to create a new oversight body. Um, and then the party would also reportedly create an, a separate flooding agency with the remnants of the environment agency. And there are reports that it won't a- the details won't actually be announced until the Labour Party conference, which isn't until o- October. 
Um, and yeah, Labour have declined to comment on any of these claims. So it's kind of hard to really know exactly the kind of nitty gritty detail. But either way, it's, you know, quite a big big proposals, lots of lots of shake up. So definitely. Um I mean as you say, we we don't know we don't really know what the thinking is here, but but um are there are do you think there are any potential issues with it? I mean it sounds like they 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 might need to do more thinking about what they might end up doing with some of the, the functions of the EA that aren't to do with water. Yeah, so I thought it was quite interesting. I saw a thread on Twitter by Andrew Sissons, who is a former civil servant and is deputy director of the think tank Nesta. Um and he said while you know, while he thinks there is merit in the idea of kind of reforming the bodies in this way, he warned that the natural environment is about much more than sewage. And, you know, just because this kind of has got so much kind of media attention, there's kind of other important things that the Environment Agency does. And, you know, he said any reforms ought to consider the whole environment together, not just a single, albeit serious issue. Yeah, yeah. Because I guess you've got you've got a lot of stuff within the EA, like like waste, I suppose that's not doesn't wouldn't fall within that. And then the the other thing around water is that if if you focus, I think the the point was made in that thread. But if you focus too heavily on the water industry, you might be missing out whole big sources of water pollution, mm. like agriculture, that 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 wouldn't be wouldn't be caught by that. So you can see it's definitely a big headline grabbing thing. But yeah, it's, it does feel like there's more more uh, fleshing out that detail to be to be done. And obviously, we'll we'll be we'll be keeping tabs on on that as the next election gets gets closer. So for our, for our final story of this week's Big Green News section, we've got some grisly news from the RSPB, which reports that 2022 was a deadly year for rare birds of prey. Um, one hen harrier has been found mutilated and 20 other individuals have gone missing in the past year across northern England, the RSPB reported. Um, Pippa, presumably this is a significant proportion of the country's hen harrier population. Yeah, so sadly, um, hen harriers are on the red list of conservation species. And in 2016, there were just 545 pairs of hen harriers recorded. Um, And obviously, the figures could have changed significantly um, since then. Um, And in 2022 in England, there were just 33 successful nests, despite there being enough habitat and food to support over 300 pairs. So it's definitely not not a good picture. And these kind of these deaths are really significant. Um, for the population, yeah, and and I, I picked up from our our story that there, there seemed to be a sense that the the wildlife agencies were, were frustrated that the perpetrators weren't being being brought to justice. Um, what what's go, what's going on there? Yeah, so it's quite interesting. But all all of these incidents were reported at the time by the RSPB and Natural England to the police and the National Wildlife Crime Unit. Um, and yet, you know, despite this, doesn't seem like much has really happened. Um, like specifically seven of the birds, including the one um, that you described as being mutilated, were from the same area in Birkdale. And while the police reportedly did carry out a search warrant in connection with the incidents, the investigation failed to lead to charges. So it's just kind of quite difficult to see what progress is actually being made. Mm. Um, And I thought it was interesting. In 2019, a government study actually found that illegal killing was the main factor limiting the recovery of hen harrier population. So this is a huge issue that the government, you know, knows is happening, but it just feels like something's, you know, there's kind of something missing in the process of kind of prosecuting. Yeah, yeah, we definitely see a lot of reports of this, and it does it does seem like there um, something isn't working properly. Thanks, Pippa. That brings this week's big green news section to a close. We'll be back next week with a lowdown on the latest environmental developments. Now to our deep dive section, where we're talking politics. Eng reports Tess Colley recently caught up with the CEO of England's largest NGO coalition for nature as green groups begin limbering up for the general election. Tess, over to you. 
I'm joined by Richard Benwell, Chief Executive of the Wildlife and Countryside Link, the largest environment and wildlife coalition in England. The group brings together 70 organisations who, in one way or another, campaign to protect and improve our natural world. But it's been a particularly turbulent year in environmental politics, with former Prime Minister Liz Truss, remember her, accused of an attack on nature by many of the Link's groups, multiple environment secretaries coming and going, and serious delays to big pieces of environmental policy. Therese Coffey, current DEFRA secretary, has been in post for six months now, and we've seen a flurry of policy announcements in the last few months. Richard, welcome to the Eco Chamber. It's good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Yeah, you you speak to DEFRA regularly, and as well as many of the UK's big nature NGOs as part of the Link's work. Has coffee calmed the waters? Have relations improved since the badlands of the attack on nature? <laughs> they certainly have. There was a period last year where it felt like all of the exciting work that's been going on for the last parliament, some of it rebuilding what we lost when we left the European Union, some of it genuinely progressive. It felt for a moment there like all that could be turned back uh, and the old ways mm. of deregulation and anti-environmentalism might have leapt to the fore. Luckily, thanks to a combination of the brave campaigning of, of lots of members of the public and yeah. lots of environmental organisations, and partly, I'm sure, to do with the changing of the guard, things have calmed now, and we're seeing a new relationship establishing with DEFRA at the moment. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's still some big pieces of you know, it's quite controversial legislation going on, like the retained EU law bill. Um, and I know that, you know, a lot of the nature groups, the Link, you guys and the RSPB, Wildlife Trust, are all up in arms about it because of what it could do to so many environmental protections. What's it like engaging with DEFRA at the moment over that? The retained EU law bill is a retained bit of daftness from <laughs> that moment we had a year ago. You can sort of understand the rhetoric around finishing off Brexit. But that piece of legislation, is it's a press release in disguise. It's trying to make out that there is a problem that needs fixing with the body of environmental law that's to do with where mm. it came from. Mm. That's a really silly way to approach the body of law and think about how you can improve it. Of course, there are bits of legislation that we inherited from Europe that can be improved, but the way of doing it isn't to impose this great big axe of Sword of Damocles hanging over with a legislative deadline where everything ceases to have effect at the end of a, a sunset period. And it's definitely not to give ministers almost unfettered power to cherry pick and change bits of that law at their whim with very little oversight from Parliament for years to come, which is what the bill would propose. I hope that in the days ahead, DEFRA and the wider government will see sense and see that a more logical and evidence-based review of environmental law to look where it can be strengthened and improved mm. to meet the good targets that they've set out in the Environment Act. Uh, I hope they'll choose that process over the, um, the hasty and in many ways, unconstitutional process that the real bill proposed. Mm. Well, yeah, you, so you mentioned the, the, the good targets that DEFRA have set, and that's been you know part of this big flurry of announcements, which you know, I was talking about earlier. Um, I mean, there, there's certainly, there, you know, some people say there are some good targets. As we've also seen the big environmental improvement plan, which was finally got out the door uh, back, in, back in January, I think it was. Um, what, can you give me a bit of a stock take of where we are with nature policy? Like what, what, where have we got to that is good and what maybe isn't, isn't so good at the moment? Yeah, I mean, three or four years ago, 
the thought that we would have a new framework of legally binding targets for nature to try to do for a natural environment what the Climate Change Act did for carbon. That mm. was a really big hope to be aiming for. And it's a good thing that we now have those. There are no doubt some big, big gaps. Mm. Um, I can't understand why DEFRA chose not to include a, a statutory target for the state of our protected sites. You know, these are our most important wildlife sites and only a third of them are in good condition. Why wouldn't you, mm. if you're serious about restoring nature, have a target to improve those? But it's worth saying that that headline goal of halting the decline of wildlife by 2030 is really impressive, it's bold, and it's a legal deadline that will come to bite by the end of the very next parliament. Mm. So we're looking at trying to turn around a decline in, in species across the board, in fresh waters, in marine environment, in the farmed environment that's been going on for decades. And we want to halt, halt that in the next six or seven years. That's a bold ambition. Mm. The obvious next question is, does the policy stack up to actually deliver that? And yes. I should have let you ask it rather than tell it. <laughs> I guess that might have been what you were about to ask. Uh, the Environmental Improvement Plan uh, had some improvements over mm. and above the 25-year Environment Plan. But if we wanted to look at whether the policies in there are enough to meet that extremely exciting mm. but extremely hard target of halting the decline of biodiversity, yeah. first of all, we'd say that there isn't the evidence in there to say with any objectivity whether that is going to happen. Mm. It's not a carbon budget for nature because DEFRA have made no attempt to show how much each individual policy will help yeah. to bend that curve. Yeah. But so is that what you'd like to see in a way, maybe? That that kind of that line by line, you know, this if Elms, the environmental land management schemes are implemented in this way, or farmers take on this initiative, that will lead to X amount of nature recovery. Is that is that how hard would that be to do? That's really hard as well, uh, and uh, nobody would expect Defra to be able to to do it with great precision. But what you really want to do is overstack the odds. At the moment, the environmental improvement plan is stacked with hope and with rhetoric uh, and the odd lyric uh, to say <laughs> that you know these are all the nice things that Defra is planning. Um, some of them are very small, some of them are quite big, but there's no sense of how they stack up. What we want to see is because of the urgency mm. of this effort to halt the decline of wildlife, you've got to overstack the odds. And there you can show with some rigour how much, um, say, a transformation in the farmed environment from increasing intensification on the one hand to mm. uh, a move to an agroecological restorative system is likely to contribute to turning around the decline in the farmland bird index. So mm. you can do it in broad brush strokes, uh, but there hasn't even been that attempt so far. So more more prose, less poetry. <laughs> yeah, probably. And uh, uh, and more, more big hands and more uh, weighing of the odds so that something that sounds rather far-fetched on current policy actually looks like it might might be feasible. Mm, well, talking of poetry and, and prose, we're the, even if the most recent political storm seems to have maybe passed and things are starting to happen in DEFRA um, with the general election, I hate to say it for anyone who's not go, got over the last one yet, <laughs> but um, with a general election on the horizon now, um, we're set to see political parties starting to you know, lay out their stalls in earnest. Um, and we kind of know you know, tell me if you disagree, but we kind of know kind of where the conservatives are at with environmental policy. We kind of know 
what they want because they've been in, in power for for quite a while. Um, the opposition, Labour, kind of Liberal Democrats as well, been accused of you know lacking any real robust policy on nature and on on well on the environment, particularly I think on nature. Is that fair? Hmm. Well, I hope we haven't seen everything that the Conservative Party have to to offer. Mm. Um, I know what you mean because obviously in government you have to be a little bit more cautious about what you put out there. But as the election approaches, I hope that the Conservatives will come out with the next story, the next mm. chapter in their story of that grand ambition that uh, Theresa May first launched of being the first government to pass on nature in better condition. At the moment, they've they've said all the right rhetoric about doing that, but they haven't written the next chapter of those big system-wide changes to reshape our economy so that the polluter pays, to mm. reshape farming so that we work with nature rather than against it, to reshape our water environments so that we're not chucking horrible things into it, but uh, allowing it to regenerate. I hope there is another chapter to come and mm. I wouldn't uh, I, I wouldn't be too premature about counting that out. As for the other parties, you're absolutely right. We've yet to see them set out their stall. Uh, I don't think any party has ever set out the level of ambition needed to meet what our government has now signed up to in the global biodiversity framework of <laughs> of turning around that decline. And I'm really looking forward to uh, what those parties can bring to the table, and let's hope for a sort of green race to the top as we head for the election. <laughs> yeah. Well, what so what what would ambition look like in your view, in the view of the wildlife and conservation? Can you know it's a, it's a broad group of groups that you represent, but what would you know real? What do you really want to see on these mm. manifestos that are probably being drafted as we speak? Yeah, they are. Well, they are. I think um, we're starting to get those hints and early conversations. What would make me weep is if we go into this election with a bunch more platitudes where the amazing anger and outrage, but also vision and hope that we see from millions of people around the country to say things like clean up our rivers, to say let's halt the decline of wildlife, if all we're rewarded with is another line in manifestos that says, of course, we care about wildlife, we'll do it. Mm. That will be a terrible failure because... This time, we need to see some big transformative change. And, and, well, we can start to describe what that might look like. We're not talking about turning the clock back to some sort of Arcadian no. imagination. <laughs> We're talking about uh, imagining a world in which public money pays for public goods at a scale mm. commensurate with the task. Yeah. So, so, for example, we only spend a couple of billion on our farmed environment. That's nowhere near enough. We're talking about things like really making the polluter pay as a principle that works and going way beyond offsetting. It's so, it's so tragic, isn't it, when you see all these exciting innovations in economics where market mechanisms are springing up and massive equations are going through to work out the, the metrics that are needed to, 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 to make these markets function. And you realise all they're doing is just about offsetting harm, like in, like in uh, biodiversity net gain. We need to go way beyond that make mm. polluters really pay, but also require those key polluting sectors to invest in nature's recovery. Those are some of the, the the big ticket items that we'll need to see to make a change. I'd also really like to see a difference where we start to recognise people's rights to a healthy environment. I mean, for me, mm. that's part of a, a progressive offer for a 21st century society that we realise 
the disenfranchised these days are those who are suffering environmental harm. And, and we've got to recognize a proper right to nature if we want people to enjoy a happy, healthy life. Yeah, but I think this is something I've been thinking about myself. Like we talk when you've just talked about it there, about the farming environment um, and the and money that needs to go in there and making that kind of change at a landscape scale. Um, because we have with the, the, the environmental land management schemes, we kind of have that kind of, you know, sort of uh, amoeba state, maybe you could <laughs> say. I don't know. That's what some would say. I think that it doesn't it doesn't go far enough. Um, uh, and we and that's because, you know, farmers, we, the reason we talk about the farmland landscape so much is because farming takes about 70% of the land in the country. It's huge. Um, but looking at some government statistics, and I saw that the agricultural workforce accounts for just 3% of the rural population, meaning that there's, you know, 97% of people living in the countryside who aren't actually working in, in farms. Is that a massive missed opportunity potentially for political parties who want to talk about the environment and nature outside of the farming conversation. Do you mean is that chance to involve more people in it? That yes. yeah, yeah, I'm sure that it is. I mean, that three percent doesn't really give you a picture of what farming means in a rural area. It might only be a few people mm. at the moment, but but for all that the world has changed in many villages up and down England and the UK, yeah. a, f- a farm still holds a sort of. Um, sort of spiritual center to community and people want to know who the farmer is and they respect them and they're part of that that Mm. fabric of life but you're right more people could be involved um we have seen as farming has changed over the last couple of decades a a movement of people out of uh, agricultural work and if we want to to help reshape Mm. the land to work more with nature one of the really good ways of doing that that creates jobs and helps people to learn the green skills and get all those benefits is to start Mm. you know reinvesting in skills like hedge laying and uh uh, farm management and and going for a more labor intensive way of way of doing things of course we don't again don't want to start talking about turning back the clock but there's no doubt that sometimes when you see things like the awful sight of over flailing of hedgerows or really poor ditch management it's not because a farmer doesn't care about their land it's because they don't have an alternative to going mm. to the sort of simple mechanized approach hopefully there's a way to to improve that again i mean elms is definitely something it would be good to to talk more about because that's an area where the next government has a chance to re-seize an initiative and describe something that's exciting again. There's definitely more to do there. Mm. Yeah, we saw, I mean, Keir Starmer at the National Farmers Union Conference in February. Uh, that was quite a much, that was very anticipated, that speech, because both from both sides, both the farming side and the, and the kind of nature group side, not that they're opposing sides. Um, but he, he kind of tread quite a careful line, I think, of saying farming needs to be about food production, but elms basically is is the way forward. So it looks like if Labour were to be next government, Elms wouldn't be thrown out. No, there's no sense that it would be thrown out, which is a really good thing. But we have sort of ground to a slight halt, haven't we, on the farming transition? And it's lost some of its vavavoom that came in that sort of original and frozen health and harmony moment. And there's a risk that because the rollout has been a bit of a grind and started to feel like a technocracy. And because 
the rewards have been sort of pared down to that treasury mentality of costs plus income foregone, mm. as if you could revolutionize the farmed environment on some sort of uh, marginal gains calculus. There's a risk yeah. that because it's got so frankly boring uh, and, there are, and nobody has a sense of who's going to win mm. out of it, there's a risk that parties turn instead to an alternative political narrative, which is we will give back the money uh, for area-based payments. We will go back to providing income support without that offer of, of um, public money for public goods. Mm. And that would be to lose one of the most important environmental innovations that have happened over the last 10 years and one that really ought to be a model for farming reform and just transition around the country. I want to see the next government come in with a bold plan to say, no, we're not going to turn back to the old ways of handing out money for just owning mm. land. Actually, we're going to make some real winners here. Family farms have big changes to do. They can't go around doing things at the margins and expect to see nature recover. No, we're going to make sure that this rewards the people who are bravest and boldest about integrating habitat in their farm, about getting off pesticides, about using regenerative agroecological approaches. We've got to reward them because mm. it's a massive, massive revolution that we're asking from farmers here. This is really, when I started reporting on the environment and nature, and stuff, I think that was the that idea that you pay farmers not just to farm, but to create uh, a different kind of good, a, na a nature good. It's a real kind of radical idea, really, isn't it? It's fantastic. Fantastic if done right. <laughs> um, you mentioned the polluter pays principle as well. I just wanted to go back to that because that's that's kind of, that's been a principle that's been flying around for quite a while now. Um, it's not not always a, seen to be applied across the, across the board. It applies in the kind of farming sector like we've just been talking about um, because you know, farm pollution is is a cause of quite a lot of water pollution, but we don't often see um, kind of the the rules around um, farming and water enforced. Um, what other kind of areas were you thinking about with the polluter pays? Like where, you know, in this ideal manifesto that you'd love to see the parties draw up, where would you like to see that kind of targeted more? Could you explain a bit more what you want to see there? Yeah, it got a bad it got a bad rep in the farming environment because what you didn't see was polluter pays applied where people were seriously breaking the rules. Mm. So we know that the the worst excesses of things like um, bad slurry management under the farming rules for water, for example, went mm. ignored or uh, habitat destruction also seems to go uh, unnoticed sometimes. And instead, you got this awful bureaucratic punitive process where. You know, it's the old cliche of tape measures at dawn, where people were being fined under cross compliance for, for, for small technocratic breaches. Mm. We do need a strong regulatory baseline in farming, and it does need to be properly enforced so that the, the guy down the road can't cheat while you're, mm. you're following the rules. And that needs to be the twin sister to generous payments for, for positives. But outside farming, there are loads of areas where we don't even begin to internalise the costs of pollution. I mean, development is one where we've had the much vaunted biodiversity gain, yes. which is meant to be something about the polluter pays, but it's only a tiny fraction. Mm. It only covers just about offsetting harm to habitat. Yes. It doesn't think about water. It doesn't think about energy use. It doesn't think about raw materials extraction, that sort of wider 
uh, in footprint of development, even though we know development is one of the chief pressures on nature. And you could say the same for lots of other industries too, things mm. like the chemicals industry, the finance sector. Wouldn't that be a great place <laughs> to start to think about polluter pays? So I think we need to take a serious view across the economy and start to recognise where positives are happening and reward them, structuring mm. benefits for those who go furthest, like in the fishing industry, for example. Why mm. don't we have that quota according to sustainable approaches? But on the flip side, we really need to make sure that there's a fair and level playing field, both for businesses now and for biz- and for current practice versus future generations. Very interesting ideas. I look forward to seeing where the link and all the all the nature groups take these ideas as we head on into the election. But just to move aside from it slightly, is is it is it fair? To, well, I guess I'm not moving aside, but is it fair to say the election now is your next major focus as a kind of campaigning kind of group and groups, um, or are there kind of other areas of work you're still laser focused on? There's loads to be done before the election, but we do have to get ready. Um, so. Right now, we've still got the levelling up bill on the agenda. And in there, there are some really big opportunities to do good. So we really want the government to implement its Glover reforms. Uh, There's a great amendment in the name of Sir John Randall, that indefatigable hero (laughs) of the Lords, uh, to to implement the Glover reforms. We really want the government to finish its work on local nature recovery strategies and give them a proper link. These are sort of maps that are meant to look for opportunities to to restore and enhance nature. And at the moment, they don't properly link legally with the planning system. Lady Parmenter Mm. has a great amendment down on that. Uh, And uh, there are other things around, say, nutrient neutrality, where Baroness Willis is looking at ways to incorporate nature-based solutions. So mm. there's loads to be done in that. And the government's also coming up with some rather dodgy and uh, over-mighty proposals, like its environmental outcome reports, which, mm. alongside the energy bill and the real bill, all give them powers to to change the habitats regulations. Yeah. So there are some really urgent things there. There are, there are plenty more to test. There's more to come on chemicals. There's more to come on the real bill. There's more to come on fisheries reform and remote monitoring. But the election, the election has got to be the next big moment for our sector because we cannot afford to go in disjointed. And there's sometimes a real challenge with such a, a rich environmental sector with so many organisations with different focuses that you give politicians so many options Hmm. they can evade saying anything by by uh, a sort of overabundance of choice so we need to hold together and have just a few really strong uh, ambitions to campaign on together and we hope to launch those over summer uh, to be in time for the election. Oh, that's a very exciting prospect. I think we'll end it there on such a exciting note. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much, Richard, for thank coming you. in and thank you. talking to us. It's been really interesting. I think, um, yeah, I think the idea of an election on the, on the horizon is going to get everyone quite galvanised. Thanks, Tess. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to Pippa Neal, Tess Colley and Richard Benwell. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please head over to our website, engreport.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until next time, goodbye.